What happens when Christianity and celebrity collide? Recent stories of narcissistic behaviour and extramarital affairs have cast doubt on whether there's enough accountability for megachurch pastors with celebrity status. Journalist Caitlin Beatty is the author of the book Celebrities for Jesus, How Personas, Platforms and Prophets Are Hurting the Church. She gives multiple examples, but first I ask her what's the state of Christian celebrity in America today? (laughs) Well, I won't name all the celebrity pastors in the United States, but I would certainly say that, you know, of the thousands of megachurches in North America, many of them are led by famous pastors and leaders. These are people who have platforms and reach far beyond their particular church. So they might have best-selling books or national speaking tours or you know mega social media platforms you mentioned Carl Lentz this is somebody who you know, actually befriended in his church ministry actual celebrities people like Justin Bieber and some of the Kardashians and Selena Gomez and so really in evangelicalism you see an orientation in churches around a specific charismatic figure that he oftentimes is the one to kind of lead the church into growth, into success, into an impressive image to the world. And over time, of course, if that person has moral failings or in other ways kind of tarnishes the reputation of the church, it's really hard for that community and organization to distance themselves and disentangle their own life together from that particular person's persona. And we are talking about very large institutions and churches, like thousands and thousands of people go to some of these churches. Yeah. So there are, of course, celebrity dynamics in smaller churches, but the mega church has been traditionally defined as a church with at least 2000 members. Truly, that's kind of on the small side of mega churches, at least in the (laughs) United States. You have some that are 40, 45,000 people any given Sunday in attendance. That doesn't even necessarily include people who are tuning in online or kind of multi-site campuses. One of the probably the most well-known Christian celebrity is Billy Graham. And you give him as an example of somebody who, you know, even though he wasn't perfect, actually did have a positive impact in a way. But how do you see the way that Billy Graham used mass media replicated in subsequent celebrity pastor figures. This comes through in the book. I, at the end of the day, very much appreciate Graham's legacy and ministry. And also I think that, you know, by the end of his life, Graham would say that, yeah, he contributed to certain celebrity dynamics in the American evangelical movement. For a lot of these celebrity pastor figures, the way that they understand their role and purpose as a pastor isn't so much a kind of shepherd of souls, which has really been the traditional biblical model of what it means to be a pastor, right? That you have proximate, up-close relationship with people in your congregation so that you can attend to their needs, that they feel that you care for them in a specific way. You know, that just even feasibly, given the size of a lot of these churches, that would be very hard for one person to do. These pastors really, more like Graham did, 
understand their role to be the excellent communicator who's going to give a sermon or a rousing talk every Sunday morning that draws crowds, that leaves people feeling encouraged and inspired, but you never really have an actual conversation with that pastor. He's just here. I say he intentionally because the vast majority of megachurch pastors in the United States are men. Mm. He's here to give us, you know, a very powerful, encouraging message. And so really that the sermon as the central event of Sunday morning worship and the person who gives the powerful sermon as being the person who is propelling our church and our ministry forward. And so we're happy with to have him as our lead pastor, even though he never provides any kind of actual pastoral care. I would think that is very much a reflection of Billy Graham's legacy as well. Yeah. I just want to turn to Bill Hybels at the moment. What was the case with him and Willow Creek? Bill Hybels, in some ways, was, I would say, one of three architects of the modern megachurch movement in the United States, the others being Robert Schuller in California a couple decades prior in the 50s and 60s, and then Rick Warren, the former pastor of Saddleback Church, also in California. Bill Hybels designed a church in the Chicago area in the mid to late 70s that explicitly catered to the felt needs of his neighbors. And Willow Creek grew exponentially by taking that approach. You know, people were drawn to this church that felt more like a conference center and a mall and a Starbucks wrapped into one than it did a traditional church. He was very powerful preacher, again, that centralizing of the sermon as the main event, very passionate person would say People coming in could have easily gotten the feeling that, you know, being part of Willow Creek was to be part of something really exciting that God was doing in the world. And and what were some of the issues with his leadership? We have the answer to that only in retrospect. I think a lot of issues at Willow Creek were allowed to persist under the radar for years and even decades before it was too late. But essentially, I would say the primary issue that came to light was that Bill Hybels had no accountability. You know, he had a board of directors. In terms of his own account, he would say, oh, yes, of course, there are people I am accountable to. But when you really got down to it, the problem was that the board at Willow Creek was composed of people who really saw Bill as their celebrity. They saw him as being a model of the faith. Maybe he was a person who brought them to faith. He was like a father figure in their lives. So when you have that power differential and when you have that kind of spiritual authority in any room that you walk into, it's really hard for people around you to ask hard questions. Just as an example, questions about Bill's email server and use of technology. He was given special dispensations that other staff members were not. You know, when initial allegations of an inappropriate relationship with a woman in the church came to light, the board refused initially to even a green light an investigation. We're not even going to look into this because we just trust Bill. And it would take you know, multiple women coming forward four or five years ago giving allegations of inappropriate 
sexual conduct allegations against Bill of that nature for the church to eventually say, okay, maybe we, we do need to look into this. We do need to listen to their accounts. You know, Bill went into early retirement. To my understanding, he continues to deny those allegations. Another example that you give in the book is about Ravi Zacharias, who was an internationally recognized minister and apologist. There were multiple staff that raised concerns about his behavior, but it really didn't become public information until after he died. Why was mm-hmm. that? Yeah, that's such a, a difficult story. I think similar to the story of Hybels and Willow Creek, even though the allegations are of a slightly different nature, you did have a ministry with RZIM. That's his international ministry. Yes. Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, you know, his name is in the name of the organization. So you can easily imagine people internally saying, well, gosh, these allegations are concerning, but what will come of us and what will come of our organization should this all fall apart? Could we even exist without the reputation of Ravi Zacharias remaining intact? You know, similar to Heibel's people internally just kind of default trusting Zacharias over others, giving him even a martyr status or a kind of persecution complex. These allegations are being lobbed against him because he's doing good work for the kingdom and the gospel. And so he's particularly threatened. But I think at the end of the day, that was a story where people internally were so disincentivized to listen to the truth because this entire organization had been built around the name and the reputation of Rabbi Zacharias. And Mm. so that can create just so much cognitive dissonance. You know, somebody who is going toe to toe with atheists as an evangelist and apologist for the faith for decades all over the world and appears to be such a godly figure. How do we square that psychologically with these allegations? How could there be such a disconnect? Mm. And again, I think Zacharias, from everything we know after his death, really preyed upon people because of a sense that he could get away with things that other people couldn't. He really used and relied on that impression of him as a good and godly leader to do whatever he wanted behind closed doors. And just, you know, stories like that are just such a a warning for all of us to never put anybody on a pedestal, it, just to never dismiss allegations when they come to light, even if it's hard for us to square those allegations with what we believe, to always be open to being wrong. And I don't say that in a cynical way. I just say that as a way to say there's only so much we can know about our leaders. And um, you think about the damage that it causes to Christianity when you have enablers. You know, there's the those particular acts by a particular person, but then there is the lack of a proper and caring response from an organization or institution or its leaders toward victims of abuse, that is a double layer of damage. Mm. And that is the opposite of what a Christian organization is called to be for people who are hurting. You have grown up evangelical, you know, you've worked 
in um, senior positions at Christianity Today and you're working in the Christian publishing industry, like you're very familiar with the world that these leaders have come from. How have these stories affected your own faith? Yeah, well, I think when you work in journalism, as I did for several years working at Christianity Today, you kind of learn that Christianity has actually a a built-in rationale for why these things happen, which is that power is a corrupting force. And Christians, of all people, should be aware of that and not think that they're immune to the temptations of power. And so personally, I have not wavered in my faith practice because of these stories, because I think that Christianity itself has a kind of theology of human sin and error and a propensity for abuse. Like, this is something we are warned against. And so bad leaders and unhealthy institutions don't make me think, and therefore God is bad or God doesn't exist. I will say that I am increasingly disinterested in any kind of practice of faith that looks flashy or even like it's trying to grow. (laughs) That I, in my personal faith practice, I'm much more drawn to something that is more traditional, that is smaller, churches where I feel like I can actually get to know the leaders and they can get to know me and are interested in getting to know me. I don't need a sermon that is particularly polished. (laughs) I, I prefer a sermon that's a little bit boring. These stories have not made me question the validity of Christian faith, but they have made me wonder if this entire model of bigger and better church that is relying on spectacle and personal charisma is just bearing so much bad fruit that we need to let it burn to the ground and then see something come up in its place that is much more smaller, locally rooted and humble. And that, in fact, is perhaps a better reflection of the spirit of Christian faith than your standard megachurch. I wonder about that vision for a smaller, more humble kind of expression of Christian faith in the context of American culture, which is quite celebrity obsessed just sort of in general. Like, is it actually possible for that to occur? I think that it is, although I think it's that kind of expression is not going to go as noticed as the megachurches by dint of its very spirit, right? Like, you know, for every unhealthy megachurch in America, there are a dozen small churches that are going about the work of living out Christian faith in ordinary and humble ways. And we just don't know about them because they're not producing scandalous news. I do think there has been a real, you know, a small but certainly real counterculture in the United States drawing on the work and ministry of people like Eugene Peterson or Stanley Hauerwas, the kind of local church movement that has wanted to resist the ways that consumerism and entertainment and celebrity have crept into the American model of church. You know, I I am part of mainline denomination that for all sorts of reasons has tended to resist some of the the draw of celebrity in a way that evangelical churches haven't, that is existing to provide a steady and stable practice of faith. 
I, I do think that that can coexist along megachurches. Of course, my hope is that the smaller, more rooted model takes off as more people just become disenchanted with the real limitations of the megachurch model. But you're right. It's certainly swimming upstream, culturally speaking. Caitlin Beatty, thanks for joining us on the Religion and Ethics Report. Thank you for your time. Caitlin Beatty is a journalist, editor and author of the book Celebrities for Jesus, How Personas, Platforms and Profits Are Hurting the Church. ABC RN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.